You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Chapter 4, I want to uh, read uh, uh, words of welcome uh, that I found uh, this week that uh, many of the churches in our tribe, um, the Acts 29 tribe, use to uh, welcome people into their gatherings. And so I pray that these words of welcome would uh, bless you and encourage you this morning. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church, the well, opens wide her arms, even virtually this morning, with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of His enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. Welcome. Would you join me in uh, reading Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is the Word of the Lord for the people of the Lord this morning. Would you join me in praying before I preach? Father, I read this text and I, I connect with the themes of contentment and confidence here. And yet, I stand here in this pulpit um, prepared to preach to an empty room and to a camera and to people on the other side of that camera that I can't see and uh, am unable to be with this morning. And I I just admit to you that um, my contentment and my confidence feels really low. And yet, I... uh, I trust that you are who you say you are. You are, as um, this welcome said a moment ago, you, you are the ally of your enemies. You are the defender of the guilty. You are the justifier of the inexcusable. And you are the friend of sinners. So, Father, I trust that you are on your throne. I pray, God, that you would Give me your spirit. Give me the contentment and the confidence necessary to preach to this empty room, mostly empty, 
to uh, people on the other side of the camera. I pray that you would do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I studied this uh, text uh, this week, as you can tell, I really landed on the themes of contentment and confidence. The reality is that contentment and confidence, uh, I think, are are very rare commodities these days. Um, When I think about contentment, it's something that can oftentimes be nothing more than um, mere passivity, unengagement, disconnection, dressed up in the expensive clothing of either religious language on the one hand or the cheap lipstick of worldly philosophies. When I shift over and I think about confidence, uh, confidence, I think, can, can oftentimes just be nothing more than a kind of a, a macho bravado um, that belongs to little boys more than anything else. Um, really underneath of that, it's really nothing more oftentimes than a bunch of reckless hype and emotional response. Um, doesn't seem too shocking to me that in a day and age where where there's an ever-increasing hostility uh, and coldness to the gospel in the world that we live in, and not just the world, but sometimes even in the church, that true contentment on the one hand and, and true confidence on the other hand can be really rare commodities with uh, counterfeits masquerading around like, like they're the real deal, uh, offering cheap hope, false hope in something that I would call self-sufficiency. Sometimes I, I catch myself um, believing that if, if my circumstances could change, um, then I would find contentment. You know, like, like if the kids would stop arguing, my friends would see the things the way that I see them. If our country would just get its act together, uh, the evil and the broken things of this world, you know, uh, discrimination, um, spousal abuse, murder, uh, abortion, child neglect. Government scandal, COVID-19, all these broken things in the world, they they would just get fixed. Somehow I would then feel content. Um, What what a blatant lie that line of thinking is. Like somehow uh, contentment is actually contingent on circumstances that are actually out of my control. Shift over, and I, I think about confidence for a minute. And, and you know, when, when I think about confidence, um, it can be just as elusive as contentment. Like when I believe that uh, if I would, you know, could just listen to one more, you know, right, um, 
political pundit or, or, or activist. If I could just spend enough time you know, researching the, the gobs and gobs of information out there, um, opinions in regards to what's going on in our culture, if I could just you know, saturate myself in all of the legal battles that are raging across our nation right now um, in pursuit of some kind of legislation of morality, um, then maybe then I would, would gain some kind of confidence um, needed to, to stand against all the evil uh, in this world. And I'm reminded that that's a blatant lie too. It's, it's a blatant lie, this kind of thinking that Somehow confidence is then contingent upon my understanding or my ability to legislate things that are beyond my ability to fully understand or control once again. Um, you know, the question becomes, uh, why? You know, when, you're, when you're trying to do heart work on yourself or when you're trying to do heart work in community, you have to interrogate yourself. You have to ask why. why. Why does my heart believe these lies? Why would I obsess over things that are out of my control? Why, why, why do I hunger or thirst for knowledge that actually is way above my pay grade? Why, why, why do I believe that controlling uh, uncontrollable circumstances is going to give me any kind of contentment? Why, why do I believe that knowing what is unknowable is going to give me some kind of confidence? These are just some of the why questions that, that I have asked, would ask. <clears throat> you know, and could it be? Um, could it be? that the believing a lie is actually easier on the, the wide path to destruction than seeking true contentment and confidence on, on the narrow path to eternal life at the foot of the cross. Could it be? I would imagine that some of these questions might be some of the same questions that might have rolled through the Apostle Paul's mind as he sat in, in what must have been and what must have felt like some really miserable circumstances, like a really miserable existence at times. It had to have felt that way. Paul in his Roman jail cell, so to speak, wondering what had become of the church that he had planted in Philippi 12 years ago. I can imagine that the Apostle Paul had a, a different end game envisioned 12 years ago didn't include suffering of backstabbing friends that had landed him in his current predicament. I, I, I doubt that the Apostle Paul had envisioned the suffering that was coming his way when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus some 30 years ago. I can imagine that the Apostle Paul, when he's writing this letter um, in that cold jail cell, maybe felt similar to some of the ways that some of us feel, maybe even just to the way that 
I feel this morning. He knew there were issues in Philippi. knew there were issues in this church that he loved dearly and he wasn't able to be with them. Instead, he's writing a letter to kind of imaginary people, so to speak. Yeah, he knew them, but wasn't able to speak to them face to face and be in their company as he addressed issues and proclaimed the message of the gospel. Of course, I admit that the Apostle Paul obviously had it a whole lot worse than we do. I'm standing in a warm building with lights and a camera, and he's writing a letter in a cold, cold imprisonment. And yet, here he is, um, 30-some years into following Jesus, 12 years uh, after planting Philippi, coming down to the end of this letter to his beloved church while he sits in chains for preaching the gospel. Where, where is Paul going to find contentment and, and, and confidence in this situation? Where, where are we going to find contentment and confidence in our current circumstances? That, that's the question, I think, under the text. And I think, I think that the Apostle Paul had learned that true contentment would be the direct result of true confidence. Now, I think you could say it the other way, too. I think that you could say that True confidence is the direct result of true contentment. So I think when you think about these things, you might think of true confidence and, and true contentment as being kind of a cyclical, um, connected kinds of topics that, that true contentment and, and true confidence are, are, are actually married together. They're like two sides of a coin that if, if you were to get one wrong, the other would be infected on either side. Now, untrue or false contentment is going to lead to, to false confidence. And false confidence, I think, is going to lead to false contentment. That's just the way I'm, I'm thinking about it. And so I'm thinking that we, what we need is both. We, we need both to be true. True contentment and true confidence resulting of each other. And I believe... I believe that Christians find both of these, true contentment and true confidence, in, in, in a truth. And here's the truth that it might be worth writing down because it's kind of going kind of to be the center. I may not blatantly say it all the way through. I think it's the center of what I want to say today, that, that all who are in Christ, all who are in union with Christ, all who are united with Christ are God-sufficient, instead of self-sufficient. So, short statement. All who are in Christ are God-sufficient instead of self-sufficient. In other words, I, I believe when I'm reading here, when I, when I, in my study of, of God's Word, my time spent with God, I believe that false contentment and false confidence actually flow out of self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency. But, if you are in Christ, if I'm in Christ, if we are in Christ, united to Him in His life, death, and resurrection, then His life, death, and resurrection become mine. It becomes yours by way of inheritance. And therefore, we can have true contentment and true confidence as we look forward to heaven, glorification, 
So all who are in Christ are God-sufficient instead of self-sufficient. This is where I believe the Apostle Paul and every true believer will find true confidence and true contentment. I want to drill down in this just a little bit. Take a look first at, at Paul's contentment. Let's, look, let's just kind of parse that out a little bit. Let's think about it. Let's ask the Spirit to speak to us as we look at it. In verses 10-12, through 12, what does Paul say? He says, I rejoiced. Notice, I rejoiced. It's a past tense. He's pointing to something that has happened that he rejoiced in. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What's he saying? He's saying, well, I rejoiced when you, when you sent help to me. It seems as though the Philippian church sent help to the Apostle Paul in prison through Epaphroditus, whom we talked about weeks ago. And at that point, the Apostle Paul is saying, I rejoiced in that moment when the Epaphroditus showed up because I learned that your concern for me had been revived. Not, not that they didn't care, he's saying. He's saying, oh, you were indeed concerned for me. I know you care. I know you were concerned. But in that moment, it reminded me, maybe the way that he would say, it reminded me that you care. So I rejoiced in that moment, recognizing they were indeed concerned for him, but he moves on. He says, you didn't have an opportunity. You didn't have the opportunity because of your own circumstances to show me that care because of the circumstances, period. There's quite a distance between Philippi and, and, and the place where Paul is locked up. And so lots of circumstances surrounding that. He's just saying, I, I realize you didn't have the opportunity, but I rejoiced. And then he moves on. He says, not, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that his contentment is not founded on the Philippians' concern for him. That's not what gives him contentment. He's also saying that his contentment is certainly not founded on a lack of difficult circumstances, because he's definitely in difficult circumstances. And he actually says... I, Contentment, I can be content in any situation, whether difficult or easy. Nevertheless, even though his contentment was not founded on either of these things, he had learned how to be content in whatever situation he found himself in, either brought low or abounding. So how is that even possible, okay? How is that even possible? How did Paul learn to be content despite his circumstances, vice versa. How, how do you and I learn how to be content despite our surrounding circumstances? One, one answer, contextually from Philippians, it can be found earlier in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Um, it's where Paul describes the mind of Christ. It's the mind of Christ that belongs to every believer through what I referenced a little bit ago, our union with Christ in His life, death, and resurrection. When, when Paul talks about putting on the mind of Christ in verse 8, chapter 2 is saying that this putting on of the mind of Christ who being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
Death on a cross? This is the humilitive mind of Christ, and that humilitive mind of Christ that Paul practiced putting on, that he instructed the Philippians to practice putting on, that humilitive mind of Christ, that is exactly what enabled the Apostle Paul to be content in every circumstance, whether he was brought low or abounding. Uh, Consequently, when you go back to the context of putting on the mind of Christ, because of our union with Christ, that putting on of the mind of Christ was also the remedy for the issues of self-centeredness and pride that the Apostle Paul addressed in that same section. Now, it's interesting to me to think about this, to think about how self-centeredness and pride can actually be the direct result of a lack of contentment. Or you could say a lack of contentment is a direct result of self-centeredness and pride. Self-centeredness and pride revolves or or, or emanates or results from self-sufficiency. Self-centeredness and pride is exactly uh, what causes us to become so rooted in an ideology or a philosophy that is actually anti-gospel, which then causes us to kind of stoically overlook the needs and the concerns and the welfare of others. That that actually is the exact uh, context of what Paul is talking about in chapter 2. Bottom line here is that the Apostle Paul was not interested in the false hope that was promised by the self-centered, pride-filled, philosophical ideologies of his day. If you go to my blog and you look at the sermon notes, you'll, you'll find footnotes to the commentary that I, that I uh, study through in preparation. You'll find a footnote on this thought um, that points to a what is known as a Stoic philosophy, S-T-O-I-C, in, in Paul's day, in, in the Philippians' day. And, and, and the Stoic philosophy is just, it's based on, um, it's based on self-sufficiency. Um, I'm going to come back to that again later. Apostle Paul was not interested in that because it was an anti-gospel. Paul was only interested in the true hope that flows out of the promises of the gospel where humility actually breeds contentment at the foot of the cross. So, where where have you been searching for contentment in, in this season? Question that I began to ask myself this week as I studied this. Where have I been searching for contentment in this season? Am I seeking contentment theologically? Or am I seeking contentment ideologically and philosophically? Let's turn our attention now to Paul's confidence. It's the second thing that, that, that you see in this text, his confidence. <laughs> Verses 12 through 13, when the Apostle Paul says that, I know how to be brought low and I, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. It's an intentional word, secret. The, the vain philosophy and ideology of Paul's day um, 
really proclaimed that they had the secret, the insider track on what was going on. And the insider track on how to deal with it. When he used this word secret, I think Paul's being very intentional. He's combating a false gospel in his day. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. When he, when he says all of this, he's, he's simply stating that his contentment is, is, is founded on his confidence. And his confidence is founded on a secret that has been revealed to him. And that secret is what? Dun, dun, dun. Right? A secret that has been revealed to him is in the final verse where he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret that he's found. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's the thing. Paul's confidence was not rooted or founded in his Roman or Hebrew citizenship. Was not. Paul's confidence was not founded on the Philippians' love or care or concern for him. Paul's confidence wasn't founded on any false or fading hope that the philosophers of his day had proclaimed. Paul's confidence is founded on the hope of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. Now it's interesting to note, as you think through this, once again, the context, it's interesting to note the lack of complaining and arguing in what Paul is saying all throughout the letter, especially here. There's a real lack of complaining and arguing despite his circumstances. Paul had dealt with the uh, issue of complaining and arguing much earlier in chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. And his remedy to the issue of complaining and arguing that so easily seeps its way into a believer's life, so easily seeps its way into a family, so easily seeps its way into a church family, and so easily seeps its way into an entire culture, complaining and arguing. I watched 15 minutes of the news this week. I've been trying to like just put it away, not even look. Watched 15 minutes after not watching much at all, and I was blown away at the level of just outright complaining and arguing arguing that was present just in that 15 minutes. And I'm just thinking, consumption-wise, from a media consumption standpoint, if I fill my mind with that, then whose mind am I putting on? And let me note that this was a, a Christian news outlet. Paul had earlier dealt with the issue of complaining and arguing. His remedy to that issue was to work out your own salvation in Christ. Therefore, Paul found no confidence in complaining or, or arguing about all the terrible circumstances of this life because he found his confidence in working out his own salvation in Christ who strengthened him to endure all things. When I think about the Apostle Paul and the immense um, influence he carried as an early leader in the church, as one of the most visible leaders, one of the most influential leaders in the early church. I think that if, if ever there was a man 
who could complain and argue about his lot in life, who, who had the influence to then utilize that complaining and arguing in his, in his life and utilize that influence to rally a bunch of believers behind him to stand against all things unholy in the culture. There was a man who could have mustered up some really false confidence rooted in the vain trappings of reckless emotional responses. If ever there was a man, I think Paul would have been that man. Over and over and over again, when you read what is called by scholars, when you read Pauline theology, you find that he was not that man. Because his confidence was not rooted in anything other than the humility and the saving grace, the suffering of the cross of Christ. So when you look at Philippians 4.13, this verse where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And if you just do some search through the Christian bubble, the Christian subculture. This is a passage that it's on t-shirts, coffee cups, socks, belts. There's probably even underwear out there with <laughs> this passage on it. I can do all things through him and strengthens me. It's been abused. It's been abused and ripped out of the context of this letter by by Christians throughout the ages. And, and, and when I say this, I say this once again with a footnote that you may go study for yourself. It's been abused by Christians throughout the ages who live with a, a stoic, S-T-O-I-C, a stoic philosophical worldview that promotes a message of triumphalism. This is what was happening in the culture in Paul's day, and he's combating that. There's a secret knowledge that they have. And that secret knowledge is that we can triumph. It's an, it's an anti-gospel. It sounds good when you hear it at first. But the more you dig into it, the more that you find this is not the gospel of the suffering of Jesus at the cross. This is a gospel of triumphalism. My summary of what that is is it's a philosophy that says that if Christians will just do their part, then God will restore the world to its rightful order. But the problem with that kind of a philosophy, number one, is it's worldly. It's not biblical. The problem with the philosophy, and the reason that I say it, is it ignores the fact that context always controls the meaning of the text. You can't import ideas and philosophies and ideologies into a verse and then expect it to hold the same meaning, authority, or power transformatively in a culture. You see, true confidence does not emanate out of the idea that a, that a Christian worldview is going to prevail or win our world back from the clutches of evil. That, that's not the message of the Scriptures. The true confidence actually rests in the suffering of the cross of Christ. Think about the suffering of the cross of Christ. Say, when you take in the whole Bible, okay, when you take all the context and you go, okay, front to back, what's it about? Then what does this verse mean in that context? Here's what you find. You find that the cross of Christ is the very center of everything. 
Everything coming into and everything going out of, it's the center, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ does have a triumphing element, yes. But it's about suffering. And it's about overcoming Satan, sin, and the grave. And out of Christ's suffering, every believer is called to carry the same cross, to suffer in the same way. And to view this world as not our home. This is not heaven. This is not Eden, the garden. The garden of Eden, the heaven hope, the desire that we have for heaven. It's not here. We're we're aliens here. Living among other aliens, right? Heaven is the thing that we look forward to. That's the context. So if context controls meaning, then you have to think about suffering and when you think about paul's suffering you turn to uh, the book of second corinthians we'll do a, a brief flyby of some passages there to kind of just get a sense of this now we 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 already walked through some of these passages many weeks ago back in chapter two when we worked through the humilitive mind of christ the suffering of christ um, but it's really important in this context to get the sense of when paul says i can do all things through him who strengthens me To get the sense of that, we need to look at the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the Apostle Paul together. In numerous passages, and you could do this with lots of different letters from Paul, but we'll just look at 2 Corinthians for a moment, briefly fly by a few passages, because in those passages, what you find is you're going to find Paul's experience and theology of suffering that in the midst of everything uh, bolstered his contentment and his confidence in Christ. So briefly, let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 4. If you look at 2 Corinthians 4, which if you're in your Bibles is back over to the left a ways. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, what Paul does in that um, passage, in that chapter, is he, he refuses to move off the mountaintop of the gospel. And he refuses to move off that mountaintop despite the rejection that he experienced from those around him who were actually blind. And despite the light and momentary affliction that he was experiencing, the suffering he was experiencing, he's not moving off the message of the gospel. Paul's, Paul's position, his union in Christ, he says, this is what gives him the confidence to say this, I believed. I believed and so I spoke. And knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, knowing that, so we do not lose heart. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are unseen are eternal things. Paul's confidence was rooted in the unseen things that are not of this world. Still thinking about confidence, look at 2 Corinthians 6. Confidence in the midst of suffering. That's the context. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul defends his ministry, instructs believers to not receive the grace of God in vain. Because through many hardships and sufferings, he says, the Apostle Paul had never ceased, not ceased to speak the truth of the gospel freely to them. And the only thing that actually restricted them, his hearers, from hearing what he was preaching, the way he says it, was their own childish affections. That's what stood in the way. Their childish affections. That I believe 
I believe, were being filtered through the vain ideologies and philosophies of the world that had been dressed up in religious language. Once again, Paul, Paul's confidence was rooted in the gospel alone. You flip forward to 2 Corinthians 11 as you continue kind of a, a brief survey on suffering through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, the, the Apostle Paul, again, he defends his ministry. He's defending his ministry against false teachers, false apostles, men who proclaim to be Christian. <clears throat> False apostles who, they preached a different gospel. They accused Paul of unfounded sin, even though, and he says this, even though I have robbed other churches by accepting support from them, financial aid from them, in order to serve you, the Corinthians. Why? Because of his deep love for them, Paul says. But nevertheless, even though the Corinthians were treating him so poorly, he says, I will continue my ministry among you. In order, he says, in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms. As Paul does. Even though, even though Paul knows, and he says this, in the same context, that just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, their end, their end will correspond to their deeds because, why? Because Paul's ministry is genuine. Again, it's a defense of his ministry. And it's genuine. It has been proven genuine through what? As you look at the text in 2 Corinthians 11, it's been proven genuine not by his awesome achievements at overcoming, not at, by his awesome achievements of uh, um, um, pounding the enemy, um, not, not through his triumphing in the culture. His ministry had been proven to be genuine through his own extreme suffering for the sake of the gospel. So therefore, Paul says, I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast in Christ and Christ alone. Bottom line is that Paul's confidence is rooted in Christ alone. <laughs> look finally at 2 Corinthians 12. One last brief text to look at. When you look at 2 Corinthians 12, Paul proclaims that even though he had begged God, you ever begged God to remove something from your life? Like, this is excruciating. Please fix this. Take it away. Paul had begged God to remove his sufferings. And God had kindly stated this. I say kindly, tongue-in-cheek. It was a kind thing for the Lord, but kindly stated this to the Apostle Paul. He said, you know what? My, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Catch that. My power is made perfect in in weakness, not on the other side of weakness, not when the suffering passes, but actually in the suffering, in your weakness, in your inability to withstand, in those excruciating circumstances, God's power is made perfect 
in you. And that then leads the Apostle Paul to respond by saying this in this context, 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I'm not going to boast in being triumphant or even attempting to be triumphant. I'm going to boast in weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, he says, I am content. There's that word again. 2 Corinthians 12. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Catch those words. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. These are not words that we want to use when we're describing how content we are. Oh, hey, you want the opposite of those words. Not weakness, but power. Not insult, but blessing. Not hardship, but easy times. Not persecution, but warm, welcome reception. Not calamity, but peace. Who would say, in those situations there is contentment? Paul is saying, no, in those I find contentment. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul's, Paul's confident contentment was deeply rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28-29, that it is Christ whom we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. This is, this is why Paul tells the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 13, that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence is Christ crucified, risen, and returning. So, as we've examined all that, by way of application and, and conclusion, um, I'll return back to kind of where I started, praying that everything we've just studied and looked at uh, speaks into this. Contentment and, and confidence really are rare commodities these days. Contentment can oftentimes be nothing more than passivity dressed up in the expensive clothing of religious language and the cheap lipstick of cultural philosophy and ideology. Confidence, on the other hand, it can, it can oftentimes be nothing more than just a bunch of reckless hype and emotional response. It doesn't seem too shocking to me, once again, that in a day and age with an ever-increasing hostility and coldness, that I believe come out of childish affections like the Apostle Paul said. And an ever-increasing hostility and coldness to the Gospel, even in the church at times, that true contentment and true confidence are actually very rare commodities with counterfeits masquerading around like they're the real deal. Offering hope in what? Hope in self-sufficiency. Paul's contentment, Paul's contentment was rooted in his confidence in the crucified, risen and returning Christ. Listen to this. There's, there's no philosophical ideology in Paul's claim to contentment. There's only a theology of the cross of Christ. The suffering of the cross of Christ. There's no fear-mongering 
in Paul's message that seeks to recklessly stir people up with hype and, and, and emotional responses. There's, there's only a theology of the suffering of the cross of Christ. Paul didn't find contentment or confidence in the false hope of vain worldly ideology or philosophy. In light of that, I think, as we come closer to the end, not just of this letter, but as we come closer to the end of 2020, a year that has been full of disappointment, full of fear, if we're honest, full of uncertainty, then the question is, what are you looking to for contentment and confidence? Would someone's acceptance of you give you the contentment and the confidence that you long for? Would my political party get in the W? Would that give me the contentment and the confidence that I long for? Would the eradication of a virus, would that give me the contentment and the confidence that I long for? What am I? What are you looking to for contentment and confidence? The Apostle Paul found a quiet contentment. He found a resolute confidence at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb in light of the hope of heaven. And I pray a prayer that the Spirit of the living God would lead you and I, us, to that very same place and that we, we would find our contentment, that we would find our confidence in the cross of Christ. Why? Because at the end of the day, I said this earlier, all who are in Christ, all who are united to Christ in union with Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, all who are in union with Jesus are God-sufficient instead of self-sufficient. Amen? We pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. And I thank You for the contentment and the confidence even that You um, gave in the moment of preaching it. And I pray, Father, that You would root that contentment and confidence deep in us. That You would help us to find our contentment and our confidence in the presence of of the God of peace who will be with us, as Paul says in verse 9. Help us to trust that you are with us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.